I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The aging process is associated with the development of diseases. BioAge Labs is seeking to expand healthy lifespans by developing therapies for aging-related diseases that target key pathways involved in the aging process. The company has built a platform that combines systems biology and AI to leverage extensive data sets to uncover the molecular drivers of aging-related diseases. We spoke to Kristen Fortney, CEO of BioAge, about the company's approach to identifying targets for aging-related diseases, its therapeutic pipeline, and whether it's pursuing any novel targets yet. Kristen, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Yeah, happy to be here. We're going to talk about aging disease and BioAge Labs' efforts to use its drug discovery platform to target diseases by targeting the pathways that affect aging. Before we get into the work that BioAge Lab is doing, I want to ask you, should we think of aging itself as a disease? Yeah, that's a great question. And within the, the field of aging biology, definitely a very controversial one. I think in large part because, you know, there's a lot of different definitions of disease and one definition of disease is just these, these adverse changes that happen that have these consequences that we otherwise not like to have. And in, in that sense, you know, aging can be considered a disease. Um, that said, aging still happens. It happens to everybody. <laughs> it's more universal than most diseases. And I think that it's still like, like personally, I think that what's what's it, it predisposes to these more severe diseases. Right. And that's the right way to think about it. So by going after targets that impact aging, we're having an impact on, you know, severe diseases like like Alzheimer's, like heart disease, like diabetes. And that's sort of the, the exciting part of it. At a biologic level, what happens to the body as we age and what's the relationship between these changes and disease? Um, so an awful lot of changes happen uh, as we get older. Uh, you know, an 80-year-old is very different from a 10-year-old, a 20-year-old. And really this aging science is still very much a new field. There's actually a famous paper that was published a few years ago called called the hallmarks of aging, just really sort of enumerating some of those core cellular changes that happen as we get older. And they're things like you start to accumulate more and more senescent cells and senescent cells are these cells that seem to be actively toxic or no longer capable of replicating or behaving in a healthy way. And, And that number, that burden gets higher as you get older. Um, you see more inflammation, you see more stem cell dysfunction, more and more things start to go wrong in different systems from the molecular level to, to an organ level, right? Like an old kidney and a young kidney are also very different in terms of how, how they look and how they behave functionally. And it's very much related to disease. Um, keep in mind, right, like most diseases, most chronic aging-related diseases, like Alzheimer's, diabetes, heart disease, most cancers, um, 
the incidence rate goes up close to exponentially as you get older. Like these are all really driven fundamentally by aging changes that occur earlier. And I would say some of the, you know, the field has been putting together causal evidence around each of these different mechanisms. I think senescent cells are a great example of where people have shown that if you go into a mouse, for example, and you delete senescent cells, that can have a, a range of positive impacts on, on different disease models. And you can draw a lot, of lo a lot of lines between particular types of aging damage and multiple chronic aging related Although diseases. My sense was with regards to senescent cells is that we've also discovered they serve a, a function and that when people got rid of the senescent cells, there was development of cancers. Um, yeah, that's often the case for most of these mechanisms, right? Like every gene in your body is it's there for a reason. It has a function to perform. Um, that said, a lot of these optimal functions, you know, they're, they're relevant at one age and, and not at another, right? Like, like another sort of popular um, area of aging science is developmental drift. And it turns out that all these genes that are essential during early development um, if they get apparently turned on when you're older, that's actually really bad. <laughs> so these things that you're really important early in life, you sort of want to shut off later. And that's very much true for um, for senescent cells, for example, as, as well, right? Like, oh, oh so you're saying specifically if senescence didn't happen and cells were allowed to replicate, that would be a bad well, thing. Well, yes. apparently but, they serve the some actual... policing function. And that when... Well, yes, you can you can think of senescence as like nature's way, because because basically if a cell starts to accumulate more and more DNA mutations, you don't want that cell replicating, right? Like that that starts to look like a cancer. You want it to stop. And and you're right that sort of senescence is better than the alternative, which is that which is which is cancer. But what's even better than that is to delete the senescent cell. It's it, it's been demonstrated basically that if those cells were to apoptose that could be um, you know, better for the animal than if they're sort of allowed to persist in this kind of toxic state. BioAge has built a discovery platform to map out in detail how we age. This makes use of systems biology and AI-based drug discovery. What's the data that's providing the input and, and what is it telling you in the form of an output? Yeah, sure. So, so my research background, you know, before co-founding BioAge is in aging biology and machine learning and, and really trying to understand it from a human perspective and being very much inspired by the fact that there are a lot of people out there, you know, like one in a thousand in the United States, for example, who make it to the age of 100. And, you know, in those families, we see delayed disease. And I, I want to learn from the human example as much as possible, how we can, you know, safely intervene and aging-related diseases and mechanisms of aging itself. And our approach at BioAge is really, you know, trying to ask the question, how do we go about understanding human aging? Because human aging is very difficult to study in the context of a lab. It doesn't happen, you know, in a couple of weeks, <laughs> like with C. elegans, or even like in a few years with, with mice, it unfolds over decades. And what we realized at BioAge is that we could take advantage of really like a natural, naturally occurring 50-year human aging experiment and we partnered with some very special biobanks that started collecting samples, blood samples, from middle-aged people that were still healthy um, as long as 50 years ago. And then those same individuals were followed up for the rest of their lives, and, and most of them are deceased today. And what that means is that there's these blood samples coupled to electronic health records that track you know, the entire future history of those individuals, including information on how long they lived, the diseases that they got as they aged, but also critically their health span. Like what was their muscle function five years, 10 years, 20 years after sample collection? 
what was their their cognitive function and and our approach at bioage is to go into these really precious samples that have been stored for a very long time and enumerate as many molecules as we can using modern technologies so we like to leverage technologies like proteomics somologic um, metabolomics transcriptomics make a big list of all the things in each of those samples and all of those people and then there's a bunch of very interesting questions we can ask of the data um, like what pathways are changing with aging but the most you know one of the most interesting ones to us is what's different you know before these people are sick but what's different when these people are middle-aged and are still healthy what, what sort of pathways are different in those individuals who go on to live exceptionally long exceptionally healthy lives and what can we learn um, from those individuals and those healthy aging trajectories I, I think the answer is everything hurts <laughs> Well, what, what's the case for this approach? Why intervene in the aging processes to deal with age-related diseases rather than targeting the mechanisms of the disease? Do, do they end up becoming one and the same? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And in some ways, we think of these age-related changes as like an earlier driving mechanism that till now has not been sort of well addressed or well studied. And, and part of the, the idea here is that because aging itself is such a, an important driver of disease, by looking at disease through the lens of aging, we're going to discover important new targets. And in terms of, of evidence, there's a growing list of interventions, you know, whether it's a genetic intervention or, or a drug that will make an animal live longer. It'll, you know, add 20% to a mouse's lifespan. And you also see at the very same time um, the delay of multiple different diseases and multiple different organ systems and multiple different tissues that really hints at the promise of the approach. I thought we could go through your pipeline and have you explain how your discovery approach led to these candidates and how they work. Let's start with your most advanced candidate, BGE-105. This is in development for muscle atrophy and ICU diaphragmatic atrophy and, and critical illness myopathy. What's the need here in these conditions and, and what's the opportunity? Sure, yeah, happy to go through the whole story of that. That's um, a program we're very excited about where we just announced some of our clinical data um, in December. And here we were initially asking the question, which pathways are the most important for your future muscle aging? Muscle aging is an area that we care a lot about at BioAge. And also critically, it's something that's very well captured in our human cohorts. So uh, the human cohorts I described to you earlier, there's all these variables related to the muscle. There's things like walking speed and how that changes through time, grip strength and how that changes through time, independence, you know, as you get older. And we took our data sets and we asked the question, you know, which signaling pathways are the most predictive of your future physical function? And apolin signaling emerged as a clear outlier in these data, and we got very interested in this pathway. Uh, and furthermore, there was like a nice linear relationship with apolin activity and health span and lifespan. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, if you, when you're middle-aged, have, you know, higher levels of apolin signaling relative to other people your age, then that correlates directly with better lifespan, better cognitive and better muscle outcomes. Um, so based on that human data, we got really excited about the pathway. We evaluated um, our, our drug, which is an apelin receptor agonist, so like a, a mimic basically of, of apelin itself uh, and multiple different animal models of muscle aging. And we saw positive effects in, in several of these models. 
And where we saw the most striking effect, uh, the most rapid, like the, the biggest effect size in the smallest amount of time was actually in a muscle atrophy model. And this is a, a pretty simple experiment where you take a very old mouse, you put a cast on one of its legs, um, you wait three weeks, you remove the cast and you weigh the muscle. And in a very old mouse, um, they experience substantial muscle atrophy rapidly. And we basically saw a close to 50% decrease in the weight of the muscle. And this was almost completely protected um, in the animals that were on the drug. We didn't see a weight decrease at all. Um, so we were pretty excited by this finding and what it meant for muscle atrophy broadly. And there's a whole bunch of indications, both acute and chronic, um, where you know if you actually have something that can help prevent muscle atrophy, it can make a very meaningful difference. So based on these data, we went right into uh, a phase 1B trial in a human population where we had older volunteers at bed rest. So these were people, you know, an average age of the low, of low 70s that are sitting in bed for, for 10 days. And this is a, a well-established model where in this population, you see significant, significant atrophy in the leg, especially in the thigh during this period. And, uh, and just to, you know, make it clear that this is an aging-related mechanism, like younger people, would have to be in bed for a couple months to see the same degree of atrophy. And we put, you know, we compared uh, patients on placebo, not, not patients, volunteers on placebo to um, volunteers taking 105. And we saw very significant differences in multiple measures of muscle atrophy. We looked at the size of the muscle. We looked at the quality of the muscle. Um, we did proteomics and muscle biopsies to look at the muscle protein fractional synthetic rate and we saw um, significant improvements and we got pretty excited about that. And then based on these data, we're actually going to be going uh, aggressively developing this drug for two parallel indications. So this is a drug that we've actually in licensed from Amgen and there are two products. There's an IV product uh, like once a day and there's also an oral pill once a day. And for the IV product, we're gonna go after these, these ICU muscle atrophies. And, uh, and you asked about the um, unmet need there. And, and really for our phase, phase two trial, we're going after patients who are being mechanically ventilated. Um, so this, there's several million patients, close to 5 million patients a year who are mechanically ventilated. And in this population, um, if you think about it, your diaphragm muscle is used to working 24 seven. And when it gets paused, you know, uh, cause you're on a ventilator, um, the impact can be very substantial. And in fact, in about half of these mechanically ventilated patients, there is clinically meaningful diaphragmatic atrophy in a matter of three to four days. And, and that's just a basically, and that can be measured by ultrasound. That basically means a 10% or more decrease in the thickness of the, of, the, uh, of the diaphragm. And when that occurs, when you have diaphragmatic atrophy, that's very predictive for a much longer stay in the ICU, um, reintubation, in-hospital mortality, et cetera. There's really a lot of unmet need there, and there's not a lot of, you know, there, there aren't other mechanisms that can preserve the muscle. Um, we also think it's an interesting patient population to go into because they're, you know, these patients will be entirely at rest. They're going to be mechanically ventilated. The diaphragm atrophy will be the most severe atrophy, but they'll experience peripheral atrophy as well, um, you know, in, 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 the, in the legs and the arms. And we can look at the, the impact of the drug here as well. Where, where these, this is also, you know, this atrophy also matters to long-term functional recovery. And separately, there's another indication that we're gonna go into for the oral product. And again, like there's a lot of different indications where atrophy matters. Um, and the, the first one that we're gonna go into for the oral product is actually um, in the obesity space. 
Um, so these, you've, you've probably heard of these flip one blockbuster drugs, right? That, that cause very significant weight loss. Um, but what's also emerging as a clear liability is that in patients, about you know up to half of the weight loss can be lean mass loss, and that's that's weight you don't want to lose. <laughs> so there's actually a lot of, and it's also very much a function of age. So the older you are when you take one of these drugs, the more likely you are to lose more lean mass, like so weight you don't want to lose, and the more likely that is to have functional consequences as well. Um, so we're very interested too, and we're going to do a trial to see if we can. You know, as a combination therapy, GLP-1 and BGE-105, our ap one receptor agonist, um, if that combination still leads to, to fat loss but preserves the muscle, um, which is another sort of really important direction for this drug. You're also pursuing NLRP3 inflammasome for CNS and ocular diseases. What's the case for this approach? NLRP3 is a really exciting immune aging target that seems to be at the nexus of many different diseases. Um, like as you get older, there's more and more inflammation in your body and inflammation is highly predictive for a number of different diseases, especially in the CNS, especially diseases like Parkinson's, like Alzheimer's. And in our human cohorts, actually, your midlife NLRP3 uh, was very highly predictive in particular for your future cognitive function. So again, like even before you're, you're sick at all, you know, while you're still, while your doctor still thinks you're healthy, um, if you have elevated inflammasome activity, that's very predictive for future um, cognitive decline. And so we believe it's a very important target there. And here we've developed our own molecules and we're on track to um, file IND uh, in the first half of next year. You haven't identified specific indications yet, but how broadly applicable might this be? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So there's there's a few companies working in, in this space. and and. In some ways, like every every aging target is is has broad potential, right? <laughs> so th those targets that are like truly aging targets are, are often have applications in more than one disease and multiple diseases. And I think NLRP3 is a, is a classic case. Um, so I think there there is a few other companies working in this space, and they're looking at indications like Parkinson's, like Alzheimer's, but there's also peripheral indications like like Nash. And I think we're going to learn over time and with clinical experience where it makes the most sense to go with these first. Um, but we're particularly interested in, in the brain. And, we're, and we also believe that we can learn a lot about neuroinflammation and which particular biomarkers um, to go after um, from like a, a phase one study. You mentioned there are a lot of other companies working in that space. One of the things that was interesting to me is, as I look at the pipeline, is that the targets you're going after aren't necessarily that unique. And I'm wondering, do you find this validating or did you just take a long way to arrive at the same point that others have in pursuing these targets for these conditions? The way that we think about this is sort of like, what's the value of human data, right? You know, and I think in the near term, the, the biggest value of, of human data is that it's very translationally de-risking. Um, so most things that, you know, work great in a mouse, <laughs> like it was a very nice paper in a mouse, they, they don't work at all at all in a human, right? So so the way that we think about it at BioAge is that we really like to see that lifetime association in human populations to know both that the mechanism is, is relevant in the early stages of disease and causal, and also that it's a mechanism you can intervene in safely, right? Like as I mentioned earlier, what we learned from our human cohorts is that if you have elevated apelin 
for decades, <laughs> um, but only seems to associate with, with good outcomes, with improved muscle function, with improved cognitive function. Um, so we think that that sort of human layer is really important for clinical de-risking de and clinical PD. Uh, and there's actually two different applications, right? So I mentioned earlier that aging is a new science and we're really sort of figuring out what the most important mechanisms are. And I, and I mentioned this paper, the hallmarks of aging. So if you think what, what, can, what, what value does human data have? I think of sort of two different classes of things. Like one, it's a great overlay on the field. You know, we can ask which of these things that worked really well in a mouse or even in a worm, which of them have a human signal? So we believe it's actually gonna matter in the human context as well. Because remember, humans are even very different from, from mice. Mice in the lab die pretty much exclusively of cancer. Heart disease is not a bottleneck to their lifespan the way it is to ours. Mice in the lab never develop Alzheimer's on their own. Um, but the second application is that, again, because we are so different from mice, there, there are going to be in the longer term novel targets emerging from these data sets that aren't known about already, um, you know, from animal studies. BioAge has raised more than $100 million to date. How far will existing funding take to you? And what are the plans for raising additional capital? Yeah, we're, we're very well capitalized now to get the programs we've discussed in our platform to meaningful mining milestones over the next couple of years. And then, you know, more, more rounds, <laughs> like like everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Is there an expectation this will carry you to 2024, 2025? What? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Till, till, you know, certainly till, till end of next year until data. Yeah. Kristen Fortney, CEO of BioAge Labs. Kristen, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah. Thank you very much. Nice to speak. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.